This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Alongside me, Matt Hour. Today we're chatting with Rachel Treasure. Rachel is a regenerative agriculturalist and renowned Australian author, perhaps best known for her iconic debut novel, Jillaroo. In this episode, you'll hear about Rachel's journey from rural journalist to best-selling author, how her novels kick-started a revolution in rural Australia, and why she's now getting her hands dirty, regenerating a rundown Tassie farm. You'll even get a sneak peek of her upcoming new release. Let's jump in. Good morning, Rachel, and thanks for joining us on Beyond the Farm Gate. It's my absolute pleasure, Matt and Annie. I thought I'd start with your connection to agriculture. Can you tell us how that began? Uh, Well, I grew up in a farming family and my grandparents, uh, my grandmother was a writer and a farmer, so she basically inspired me. And when I was little, I would go to my auntie's farm, which was kind of based on vertical stacking of enterprises so you'd have the dairy cows and the milk would get fed to the pigs and then you know there was wool sheep and beef cows and honeybees and orchards and they would spin wool and then I as a kid my dad was developing farms around the Hobart area and so I would go to these farms and see the bulldozers come in and they'd put in a monocrop and clear everything and so I was seeing these very two vastly different forms of agriculture one was the kind of more old style I guess and then the other was the modern conventional coming in this was sort of back in the 70s so so I remember footage of the Vietnam War and I'd go to this farm that dad was developing with the dozers and as a kid I thought that's that's really similar and since then since I've studied ag I found out that's what we were doing we were using the products and the technologies of war on landscape so I've always had this absolute fascination with soil and bushland and what people do to landscape so it's sort of in me I guess. That probably answers my next question around why did you choose to study agriculture and work in the industry? Yeah well partly I just absolutely love it. I cannot get outside enough in life. I never wanted a nine to five role so having that writing background with my grandmother setting setting that goal of one day writing about my landscape I wanted to work in landscape and then write as well. So agriculture has sent me on a journey leaving Tasmania when I was really young and heading off in a, you know, it was a Toyota Corona with a plastic bull bar back in the day. (laughs) And um, because they told me they had big roos on the mainland. Yeah, so, well, I worked for a year as a Jillaroo in Tassie in the high country, uh, learning low-stress stock handling and horse handling. Then when I went to Orange Ag College, I saw these incredibly large systems of rice growing, cotton farms. It was just such a contrast. So yeah, my journey in agriculture then led me to journalism, where I got to become a dairy reporter and then write for people like the Stock and Land and ABC Rural. So I was able to combine both that love of hands-on as yeah, as well as adventuring into other people's farms and other people's homes. 
Rachel, if we go back a couple of steps to when you moved across to the mainland and started studying in Orange, what was that like not only to relocate such a long way but also you know, as a female in that time studying agriculture, what was that like? Well, I actually wanted to do the farm management course but the college talked me out of it and I ended up doing what was farm secretarial which is farm business admin which for me was uh, on one level heartbreaking because I'm not an admin kind of person. So there was a lot of gender division and most of the students in the agricultural management sector of that college were men. They were young males. So I found that confronting. I also, as a Tasmanian, it was a real eye-opener coming from that growing up where you we would shoot wallaby and rabbit and we would eat them we would fish for flathead and eat it we'd get abalone and and oysters off the rocks and I would skin animals and sell skins it was a really uh, it makes it sound really backward and hick but it was such a beautiful upbringing and it gave you such connectivity to landscape and when I landed in Orange in New South Wales it was very unfamiliar where there was a quite a gender divide and women were in the kitchen. They weren't butchering sheep, which is something I'd been trained to do as a kid, was to cut up meat for the for the week for the rest of the family. Yeah, so I really, it was a culture shock, I have to admit. But what that gave me was this absolute clarity around 30 years on how we've just diminished nature, made it about pure economics. It's now going to be up to women to step in and say hang on a bit of balance we need to pull back here challenging though it was it was also a huge amount of fun and huge lot of learning went on during those years early years and it sparked my first novel Jillaroo because I really wanted to talk about contemporary rural women women like me who love work sheepdogs we love our utes we love uh, having our hands in the soil hands-on was there a specific event or trigger that inspired you to write that or was it, you know, a culmination of everything that you had experienced so far? Well, I know that I was born a writer. I was forever writing in journals and scribbling. And I would go out mustering on my horse when I was first jillarooing, first year out of school, and I'd go back into the farm homestead and write about that experience you know the cattle saliva landing on my skin you know when the wind's blowing full force all that richness that comes with agricultural life but what was the catalyst I think was one lecturer called Kerry Cochran Charles Sturt, well, it was then Orange Agricultural College and he said Rachel you have such a gift for communication you have to go on with this so even though I was dismal at the accounting side of the course he saw a light in me that shone when it came to communication so he encouraged me to go and study journalism at Charles Sturt University and there I did a creative writing sub-major and I was told not to specialize in agriculture so I ignored that advice by the other <laughs> by the subsequent teachers and honed my sights on agriculture so it's been down to the support of Kerry Cochran who I must say has formed the first regenerative agricultural Bachelor of Science course in the world, which I am now studying as well. So Kerry was one of the first presenters during our uni tutorials. And so there's Kerry 
30 years later, still waving the flag for a different mindset in agriculture. So, you know, all power to teachers, really. They really can change lives. Absolutely. And I think also novels can change lives. And Jillaroo is such a beautiful novel and has become so iconic within Australia. Can you tell us about, you know, the initial reaction to when you released it? Because it it was something really different and it inspired a little bit of a movement as well. It absolutely did. In fact, I was at Henty Machinery Field Days a couple of years back pre-COVID and a woman came up to me and she said she read Jillaroo and she no longer felt isolated because she thought she was weird, that she wanted to work with Kelpies and she wanted to work in the sale yards. Um, and I had been uh, one of the first few studying professional wool classing, so I'd felt that isolation. So I've got women who have come to the vocation of agriculture because of reading Jillaroo. So whether they've had a city background or not, in terms of the publishing industry, I submitted that manuscript, even though I'd worked 10 years on it from a professional standpoint, I submitted it on what's called the slush pile. So I didn't have an agent, no one had heard of me, and I was offered a contract by Penguin Books Australia within 10 days of them reading it because they had never read a heroine as refreshing as Rebecca Saunders. So my whole idea behind that book was to write it so that people who didn't normally read books could pick it up and see themselves within the pages and get hooked at the end of every chapter and keep reading. So another beautiful part of my now 20 plus career as an author is having people come up to me and say, they have never read novels before. School turned them off novels, but my books have started them reading again. Women in their 40s, men as well, who listen to my books on audio. So it's been such a privilege to reach people through something I'm passionate about, which is agriculture. And that's what I was going to ask, Rachel. Is it just women that are interested in your novels or are men getting on board as well? Absolutely, men are getting on board with it. They often wives will say, "Well, you know, my husband pinched your pinched my book from my bedside table, and he hasn't given it back, and he now wants to read more of my book." So, it, what they would market me as is rural romance or chooklit, which is something that really grates on me because Jillaroo was actually about succession planning or the lack of for women in farming landscapes, so many women miss out on land ownership because of this British mentality that we've inherited. And then the other factor is that it was about rural youth suicide. Like a lot of blokes are struggling in these systems of war, which I alluded to the Vietnam War. You're bringing those products of war onto your farm and then having to shelter your family from them. So there's all these sort of psychological processes going on that I've woven into the novels and the men who are waking up to the fact that they're putting on their boots every morning to go and kill stuff every day to grow one crop they're reaching for my novels as well now so I'm getting a lovely balance and I'm getting some beautiful letters from men around the world you know particularly guys in New Zealand where their systems are crashing and they're saying thank you because they're changing their mindset and once they change their mindset then they can go home change their management it's very exciting the power of story and that's you know a really good theme around you know you've released so many books in that time and you are starting to see men come on board pick them up have a read have you noticed within the broader industry within that time as well 
changes in the gender divide? Uh, My experience is very raw and personal in the fact that when divorce was imminent, I'd come home to Tasmania to manage the family farm with my then husband. And when divorce was imminent, my dad said my ex-husband was to stay. So I have a very direct experience of that gender view that women can't run property. And, you know, that that's given me a journey of finding forgiveness and self-love and love for others as well because these fellas like my direct family couldn't see the value of women in the system so for me the reward has been coming in to repartner with somebody who sees the value of mother nature the value of balance and throughout that journey so rather than me having to raise my children in a farming environment that was quite hostile towards Mother Earth. I'm now walking with a tribe of farmers, really progressive farmers, profitable farmers, who gender is now not an issue. We are all humans. We are all people. Humans relate to the term humus, which is soil. We are all interlinked with the soil. So what's been so beautiful about my journey and exciting uh, has been this casting away of gender divides and finding a tribe of people who want to further the earth plus find fantastic new markets that are coming forward because all of these young kids who are at school they're looking for product that farmers like myself and my partner Daniel are producing so we're really on a win-win and the gender thing isn't even an issue anymore in the regenerative agroecological space. And just leading on from that talk around soils, Rachel, I know you're someone who's experimenting with regenerative agriculture, as you've touched on, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the decision to return to Tasmania and start Ripple Farm Partners. So my partner, Daniel, his parents had said, here's 100 acres, take it on. They'd bought it as an investment. So theirs is a typical case of we'll buy land for investment and be absentee owners. So they'd leased this property out for about 30 years. And so by the time we came to it, it was absolutely brutalised. So it had had peas, poppies, potato cropping. It had been overgrazed. We walked on to this absolute barren, lifeless block of land. And Daniel's vision for it is to return it to, yes, a profitable farm producing nourishing food and ethical fibre, but to also restore the land's ecology. And we also happened to see a shearing shed up for relocation. And this beast was 30 metres by 12 and a half metres. And I said, let's buy it and let's move it. And we did. So we've moved this giant shearing shed It's a 1960s era shearing shed. We both love shearing sheds and we want to set Ripple Farm up as a demonstration site so that people can come and not just learn about agroecological practices and about soil biology and about plant function, but also actually feel the land and feel what land feels like when it is nurtured. Yeah, so excitingly, the shearing shed's still under construction, but we've got our first land care field day tomorrow. And we're rolling out in December with a Tarwin Park training field day, a two-day field day that will have Stuart Andrews come and he will talk about land hydrology and the importance of water flow through your farm. So all these amazingly exciting things that are happening on Ripple Farms. We're also running 
Dexter cattle that we sell to boutique butcher that we attract a premium for our beef because they sell our regenerative story as well. And we run Aloe Burn Pole Merino sheep. They've been selected for their maternal instincts, so they're lovely and quiet and they stay behind our movable fences. And they're from uh, Boree Creek, friends from Ag College, and they're bare breech merino, so there's no mulesing. And on them we use a product called Num Nuts at marking time, which delivers uh, pain relief. It's an injectable one. It's uh, illustration with an injection. It's a lovely device that we use. So there's all this layering that goes on right from moving the animals every day. And that's what we do on Ripple Farms. We, we live it and we breathe it. And we, now we want to spread the word and educate. Exciting times. It's interesting to hear that marketing angle because I think Tasmania, as Australia does, has got that, that clean green image. But it sounds like in a way you're taking it to the next level. Would that be a fair assumption? Oh, absolutely, Matt. So when we say it's an image, that's exactly what it is. It's an image. We are still adopting and moving forward into more aggressive forms of agriculture. So we're putting in massive irrigation schemes here um, that are going to deplete the soil more rapidly than before. Farmers are disempowering themselves by getting into this they're hooked into a system of chemical ag that serves no one. Daniel and I, as part of our regenerative agricultural studies with Southern Cross University, we're looking at the health effects of these chemicals and, you know, the blood-brain barrier that glyphosate is water-soluble. It, it goes through stomach linings. You look at the work of Dr. Zach Bush, just Google some of his YouTubes, and it will really steer farmers into you know, not a fear space, but a space of excitement because we can wean ourselves from these systems. There's broad acre farmers in America doing it where they're saving a million dollars a year, one farm alone saving a million dollars a year on glyphosate and they've turned to biological methods of farming and they're healthier, their systems are healthier. So yeah, really exciting times. Tasmania, even though it has a clean green image, it's lagging behind in terms of understanding the holism of agroecological farming it's a it's a different mindset to the linear one where you have a chemical soil test and you put on set applications and you have a calendar year where you do things agroecological or regenerative practices a total mind shift so unless you're ready to shift your mind then that it mightn't sit well with you but then farmers around the world are doing it and there's a number of us in Tasmania and we're gaining ground, I like to say, because we're literally building topsoil. We are literally gaining ground by using these methods and we are building topsoil and we're doing it cost effectively and really quite easily once you understand the principles. You sound quite balanced in, in selling, I suppose, selling the idea of regenerative agriculture. And I imagine it's a little bit daunting for a conventional farmer to sort of see this as a new idea and and then think they have to implement everything at once. Is that sort of a way that you're selling it, that you can actually go a step-by-step -step process and slowly start to, to change and improve things based on regenerative agriculture principles? To be quite clear, we are, we're not actually selling anything. It's just, it's something we've stepped into and we are so excited about it. So you get some fellows who are on the conventional side of the fence or the, you know, the industrial ag side of the fence and they think it's some kind of cult because everybody's just so buzzy <laughs> about it. But I just know as a journalist, I would walk into 
so many different farmer meetings or gatherings and they were all funded by universities that were funded by fertiliser companies or they were funded by somebody else who had a vested interest. So what regenerative ag does, it gives you back your power. So once you understand the soil principles and the principles of how plants function, then you can ease your foot off the pedal with those annual sprays that you have to use, the crop desiccants, all of those stuff. The gorgeous thing about this is there's people like Ian and Di Haggerty in Western Australia, broadacre grain growers, they're building sandy soil into this biological haven and getting fantastic yields. And also I think they're about to do testing on the nutritional value of their grain which is vastly greater than conventional ag so what if people are feeling kind of squirmy and uncomfortable about this that is totally understandable because this is going against the mainstream system norms but when it comes back to the very personal level you pull on your boots and you know that you're building worms and dung beetles and mycorrhizal fungi and all this life in the soil you know you're going out to do that and produce fantastic quality food. That's why people in Regen Ag are starting to get excited. Some people are purists. I'm a bit of a purist. We barely even use drench on our animals unless the dung tests deem that we have to and we, we haven't had to use drench on them because we move them every day. But there are other people who are just putting a fulvic acid in with their chemicals so that just buffers it a bit more and there's less runoff. So they're just, there's people come to it from different angles, start off small and just go nuts Googling it because there is some really cool stuff out there. And as information builds, you mentioned that you're studying a new degree. Can you tell us a little bit about that course and maybe for the, the younger listeners, which are, are thinking about studying something at university, how can they go about getting into something like that? During um, COVID, we saw that the government were assisting people to study. So Dan and I now, you know, we're in our 50s. We thought, well, we'll go back to school. And we're doing one subject uh, semester with Southern Cross University. And it is a Bachelor of Science in Regenerative Agriculture. And it's still forming, but it's tapped us into a network of people that have so much expertise, the students as well. So other farmers that are trialling this kind of mindset and management in arid areas of Australia or tropical areas of Australia. Some are fruit growers, others are, you know, cattle growers. It's not only are we getting the benefit of the study, but we're also getting this wonderful network there. And there's going to be in the future such a demand, not for pure agronomy, but for agroecology. So we've got agriculture and ecology married together in our knowledge base. So there'll be farmers that are hungry to find out about composting teas and biostimulants and the remedies that we can use that are not just chemical but also biological. There's huge scope. There's also massive scope for people to modify machinery because when you change to region practices, people, some people are machinery mad, like they just love burning diesel. They love the big tractors. So there's scope there for people to go into the machinery shop side of things where you have specialist disc seeders, you have specialist foliar spray applications because a lot of these biologically active liquids need to be put on the stomata, the underside of the leaves. So there's not a great deal of machinery out there. So there's a whole scope of job opportunities and future pathways 
for people that want to nurture mother mother nature and planet earth we all know that needs to happen and also make a really good honest dollar so it you know marrying economics and ecology together in the one economic spreadsheet and the one business it's exciting Rachel you mentioned that there's farmers hungry to find out more about regen practices one thing that I'm hungry to find out and I think our listeners are too is whether you can give us a sneak peek as to whether you have another book in the works oh I do it's in an edit form so it's way too long it's called milking time and it's the first novel I've written in a first-person narrative. So you're actually inside the character's head. And my character is Connie Mulligan. She's a dairy farmer's daughter from Tasmania. So I'm able to get that really rough, politically incorrect, rugged Tassie humour into a novel without the editors slashing and burning it too much. <laughs> but Connie, <laughs> because there, there is like the political correctness police is out and about in full force, especially for, for Tasmanians who are a bit rough around the edges. But so <laughs> Connie Mulligan, um, she is so cross with her family and their dairy practices and watching this beautiful river system die that she becomes a vegan. So it's this whole humorous, story told with love about the ridiculous grooves we humans put ourselves into whether you eat meat or don't eat meat you know so it's it's kind of the veganism versus the tassie hunt and shoot and fish and bulldoze it and you know yeah plow it to within an inch of its life so neither neither are right neither are wrong they just are so it's a wonderful journey through and it also carries this wonderful fun notion of the feminine uprising which is what's happening around the world you know we saw it come after the you know with the black lives matter riots there's a waking up of the feminine because mother earth is essentially feminine and while while i say that this isn't about a gendered debate i'm not putting down my brotherhood of kind men i love blokes you know we need their linear thinking and their muscles and their wonderfulness with machinery but what my novel milking time highlights is once you harness that with the blokes and you balance it out with this wonderful feminine power and wisdom and humor then you get this fantastic explosion of local community growth and healing and that's what milking time tells you know in a humorous tazzy as way i'm hoping <laughs> That sounds awesome. It feels like, you know, all the areas of your life coming together in what's going to be a very different novel for you. Yeah, it is a very different novel and it might challenge a few people, but again, it's got that classic Rachel Treasure, wicked humour that just won't stay undercover. <laughs> just keeps coming, <laughs> just keeps coming up. <laughs> well, thank you for blessing us with your wicked humour today. We just have one final question to wrap up with, which we ask all of our guests, and that is what work boots do you wear when you're out on the farm with Dan? That is the funniest question because my I blew out my Thomas Cooks totally, so I had to wear the fashion boots, right, which were dreadful. So, <laughs> and I, I just invested in some Justin boots because my very first pair of cowgirl boots back in the 90s that I bought at Calgary Stampede, they're my faves and I thought I, I just I'm going all out with my book advance to get a pair of Justin boots and that are waterproof because we're restoring our wetland on our property so they're brand new and I feel like a bit of a dork in them but anyway <laughs> they'll, they'll wear out 
<laughs> Got to combine the fashion with function. Oh, fashion with function is always good. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. We've loved having a chat. And thank you also for giving us a sneak peek into your upcoming novel. We really appreciate it. Oh, look, and thank you, Matt and Annie, and the podcast, your platform for giving me some airtime on um, on the beautiful potential of agriculture and re-enlivening it in the Australian landscape. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Pleasure. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert. And I'm Matt Howe, and we'll chat to you next time.